Let me uh, begin with a word of prayer, but before I do, I just want to uh, just make you aware of Ken Whitworth. Obviously, normally here, he's not feeling well this morning, so let's just pray for him as we begin our class time. Lord, we thank You for this time that we can uh, understand better how to hear You and how to learn from Your Word and not to just take it and use it whatever way we please, but to be wise and use normal uh, laws of interpretation and language. Um, Lord, we pray that You'd help us not to get buried in the technicalities, but that we would uh, be able to see clearly what it is that we have a responsibility to do and that to use those tools that we learn here to apply them to our personal reading of the Scripture and study. And we look forward to how You're going to use that to strengthen us in our faith and to encourage us to do more for You. And we pray that You give us the strength and the grace to do that. We pray for our brother Ken, who uh, would love to be here this morning, but um, has some problems with his knees this morning, as he often does. And we just pray that You'd give him strength, um, allow him to be in the service this evening, and uh, allow him to find his comfort and strength in You even during this uh, time of physical pain. And uh, we just ask that you, Your Spirit would be upon us as we look into Your Word and, and think about how to study these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to turn in your Bible to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Before we get into our lesson for this week, let me just uh, highlight a couple things that we've been talking about with regard to how to interpret the Bible. The most important part of our understanding of the Scriptures is, is context. We need to understand where it comes from. We can't just look at a verse, pull it out, and use it. We have to understand what it meant during that time. And so we came up with four principles of interpretation. First, a text can never mean what it never meant. A text can never mean what it never meant. Secondly, all texts are not alike. Thirdly, uh, a given text only has one meaning. Okay, It doesn't have multiple meanings. It has a meaning for them and a meaning for us. It has one meaning. And then fourthly, the Bible communicates a unified message. That is, the Bible has one author, God, with multiple human authors, but one ultimate author, God, who who does not contradict Himself. So we can go and when we find something that's difficult, when we find a passage that's not quite clear, we can look at other passages that are more clear because God does not contradict Himself. But what we find here today in, in James chapter 1 is that the purpose of reading the Bible is not just to go through a ritual or to make it become a habit just for the sake of habit, but rather is it is so that we can apply it, so that we can apply it to our lives. Notice James chapter 1, verse 22. James is speaking to believers and he says, "...but prove yourselves doers of the Word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves." Okay, so according to that verse, what is the danger if we don't hear the word rightly? What is the danger? 
What does that what does James tell us there in verse twenty two? Okay, it doesn't take root. But what does James? Let's look at James, and what does he say? Is the danger right? You can delude yourself. You can deceive your own self that you are obeying the scriptures when you really aren't. And and so scripture can, like Mark said, it can just come and hit you, and you think you've got it, and you don't because you haven't actually done anything with it. And so our responsibility as as believers is to hear the Word of God. Don't be hearers only, but also to do it. So that takes some work to be able to figure out what the Scriptures are saying and then and then apply them to our lives. Um, so let's begin with an exercise. Okay, Jane, Let's turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we'll go through several passages and try to find out Okay, what is the application for our lives? Some of these are easy and some are a little bit more difficult. And uh, so hopefully we can see how important this is with, with all of Scripture, okay? I put on there James 1.12. Let me see. Is that the verse I'm looking for or is it John? Okay, I'm sorry. It should be James. I wrote on your paper, James, and I said, John. James 1.12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Alright, so if we're going to be doers of the word... Not just hearers only. We don't just hear this this word that we're that we're looking at, but we're going to be doers. Then we need to t- turn this into a phrase. Uh, I must. Okay. So based on this verse, what would you? How would you fill in the rest of that? I must what? Persevere under trial. Good. Persevere under trial. So when it comes to. Um, when it comes to difficult times in life, in our life, uh, we need to be able to persevere because those who persevere, persevere are the ones who love God. All right, now back to Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy is the uh, fifth book of your Bible. This is part of the Law of Moses. We'll get into a little bit of this today. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And notice verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Based on this verse, we must what? Love the Lord our God, right? It's that simple. So, love God. Simply say it like that. So, we look at a verse. We don't just hear it, but we we find out how we can actually go about doing it. Alright? Now, these next ones are a little bit more difficult. 1 Corinthians 16. 
1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul's finishing up his final greetings, his closing to the, the people at Corinth, the believers at Corinth. And notice verse 20. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Based on this verse, I must what? <laughs> okay. Does this work in our culture? Mark? Okay. Good. Show love to the church family would be probably a good principle to draw from that. Alright. Now let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter five. And notice what Paul says in verse twenty three. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So based on this verse, we must what? What's that? Drink Pepto Bismol. <laughs> Alright, do something to calm your stomach. Purify the water. Purify your water, possibly. Let's go back to Leviticus 19. Okay, Leviticus is the third book in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19. And this is um, Moses giving explanation to the people of Israel about how they how God expects them to live. Leviticus nineteen nineteen. You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Based on Leviticus 19.19, 19, we must what? Jared? <laughs> Instruct the Israelites how to farm, possibly. Okay, is this verse talking about us? We can't breed two kinds of cattle. We can't sow our field with two kinds of seed. We can't wear garments that are mixed. I mean, I hope that's not the case because I think many of us, if not all of us, <laughs> are wearing garments that are mixed today. So, so what I'm trying to show you specifically with these last three is that, that many of us only have one principle when it comes to, to making application. And it is this. I must do what the Bible says. So, we, we get to a place like this where it says no mixed garments or no mixed, uh, no mixed uh, fabrics. And we say, well, I must do what the Bible says. But it doesn't work that way, doesn't it? Because in some cases, in many cases in the Scriptures, that just doesn't apply. We can't just take Scripture and go, I must apply this to my life by just doing exactly what that says. So we, we need to, we need to, um, we can't just throw that out, okay? Because here's what happens is we take the baby and throw the baby out with the bathwater. And and all of a sudden now we don't the Old Testament's not important for us because we can't use any of it. I mean none of that applied to us, so it can't apply to us now except 
The problem is, the problem with that type of thinking is 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is a familiar passage, so I'll read, I'll read it to you. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture, okay, not part of the Scripture, there's a few spots, just a couple of the books, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How is it that we are equipped for every good work? It's done through the Scripture, through the power of the Scripture. And what Paul is saying on the authority of of, uh, God Himself is that all Scripture is profitable for us. All Scripture. So even the ones that say things about no uh, no mixed breeds of cattle and so on. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierced and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, so these two passages, 2 Timothy 3 and Hebrews 4, they are very clear that all Scripture has application. So, so it's all about application, but application is not always easy as we saw in those, those last three examples. Because what, what needs to take place before application often is two other, um, two other processes or two other things that need to happen. Okay, first is observation. Okay, we just simply need to observe what is there. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. And then interpret. That's what we were talking about previously. We are talking about all the dangers and interpretation, how we automatically interpret everything that comes into our eye gate and our ear gate. It's automatic. But we need to understand how those principles work with regard to the Scripture. Okay, so now we're going to take a step back um, and, uh, and, and next week look more at this observation. How do we just look at the Scriptures, find out what it is saying before we can find out what it means? Before what it, we can find out what it means for us. See, this is the step. These these two steps we often we often skip. We go right from a passage of scripture right to applying it to our lives, and yet we've never understood what it meant, uh, or, or what it said, what it meant, and what it means for us. Okay, we'll talk more about how that all plays together as we move on, but. But this whole process that we're working through is a process that God demands of us. Okay, we have a responsibility not to just lay back and wait for the Scriptures to whap us upside the head and show us exactly what it means. No, it requires work on our part. It requires thought. Um, But this is a process that happens, really, that can only rightly be understood by believers. It's a process called illumination. Okay, think light, illumination, illumine. God gives the Spirit to us to help illumine, to enlighten our minds, to help us understand the significance of Scripture and its significance for us. Okay, So that's a process that, that God does in us. And what I would say to you is that, that we need to pray for that sort of help from God. Okay, 
we need to understand that, that because all truth, all wisdom comes from God, we need to pray to Him and ask for His grace in that way. Is anyone else cold in here besides me? Just me. Okay. Alright, if someone else gets cold, help me out. Um, before we begin our observation on a given text, we need to, to do these other two principles. Um, so, before we get to this observation one, I want to go back to the second principle which is on the front of your sheet. It says, all texts are not alike. Okay, Because we need to understand what literature we're looking at first before we move to, to doing the observation level. All texts are not alike. So, let's be specific about what kind of texts we're looking at. And we can do that by, by following this chart. I think this chart is very helpful. I, I uh, found this um, uh, from somebody else. This is not unique to me. I did not develop this on my own. But I thought I'd pass this along to you because I found it to be very helpful. Okay, you know that the Bible is broken up into two main sections, two main covenants or testaments. That's all testament is a covenant. Okay, we got the old covenant that God had with His people, Israel, and then the new covenant that God, that Jesus Christ has with, with His church. Okay, so we have the Old and the New Testament. And then each of those sections of the Bible are broken up into smaller sections. And this will help us understand our literary type, our what type of literature we're looking at. So we begin with uh, history. It's uh, from Genesis all the way through Nehemiah. This just gives a... Um, a history, first Moses and then others, of recorded events of which uh, these events actually took place. It's not a myth or an allegory, but it's real story of, of the beginning of the world, mankind, and the nation Israel. And these writings are unique among ancient works in that they do not glorify their heroes. Okay, think about that for a second. The Bible does not glorify its heroes. Can you think of an example in the Old Testament in the books of history between Genesis and Nehemiah of a hero of the faith who was not... Okay, we, we, saw some, we saw some of the dark spots. Can you think of someone? Moses? Yeah. Moses obviously um, did not trust God fully. Um, he, he struck the rock twice, for example was not able to go into the promised land, the one that he was leading all these people toward. Yeah, exactly. So we see a lot of great things about Moses, that he was a man of faith, but we also see his sin. Who else? Gideon. Okay, Gideon was a man used greatly by God in the book of Judges, but he also was a man who was weak in his faith. And uh, when God said, you need to go and tear down that Asherah pole, uh, in, in the camp of Israel, okay, they're, they're serving a pagan god. Instead of doing it in daylight, Gideon goes at night because he's afraid something might happen to him. And uh, he tears it down. And So, he does follow God, yes, but, but he's also a sinner. You think of someone else? David. David. I mean, of all the, te- the, the people in the Old Testament, I would say David was probably we could call the greatest hero of the faith. God called him a man after his own heart. When he sought out David to be king over Israel, he said, this man is going to be a man after my own heart. 
and yet we see him fall really badly. And uh, and so you find that it's the scriptures are authentic in that way, different than than your your novels that you're reading about, your your fiction, okay, or sometimes even our our own history of our country, or of our world. All the heroes that we talk about there, we don't find out a lot about their faults, and that's why the scriptures are unique in that way because really it's not about the people, is it? The Bible is all about God, about these what we call heroes. They're they're not really heroes in that sense. Really, God is the hero. And so you find in the story, even of David killing Goliath, that that David is standing up for his God, who is the hero. That God allowed David to kill Goliath because he had been, Goliath had been defying the armies of Israel. Okay? So, um, I I, uh, thought that statement was pretty interesting and I wanted to expound on that a little bit. All right, next, wisdom. This includes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And some people include Esther in this. Others put her her book in um, the book about her in the history portion. These are known as wisdom literature. The focus here is not on historical events, but what we can learn about living wisely and worshiping rightly. Although these are in the Old Testament where blessings are earthly rewards, the wisdom from these books is timeless. Okay, we'll talk about more how to interpret these types of books. But, but it's no wonder that these books are some of the favorites. Okay? People have their favorite chapters sometimes in the book of Psalms, for example, because the Psalms help articulate for us what we're feeling okay? spiritually. Why are you far away from me, God? Where are you? Why are my enemies winning? Psalm 73 and so on. Uh, it's because it, it's not necessarily uh, talking about um, historical events as much as it's talking about how to live wisely in a sin-cursed world that is governed by God and how to worship Him rightly. Okay, Prophecy. About 29% of the Old Testament and 22% of the New Testament is predictive or prophetic literature. Unlike other ancient predictions, these are specific announcements of future events consistent with other biblical prophecies, many of which are already literally fulfilled. Okay, so you have from uh, Isaiah all the way through Malachi, just books, books upon books of, of prophecy. Okay? Then in the New Testament, you have the Gospels. These are four accounts, literally meaning the good news about the life of Christ. They were written in the 8050s, Matthew and Mark, in the 8060s, Luke, and the 70s, John. These are not strictly biographies of the life of Christ. And that statement is important. Rather, they are selective, historically true events. Okay, so they're picking out uh, stories about Christ that will help them make an argument about why we should follow Him. The authors show Jesus revealing God to the world, preparing the apostles to start the church, and paying for the sins of the world by His death on the cross. Okay, John writes at the end of his book, if we... If, if we wrote about all of the events that, that occurred in the life of Jesus, there would not be a, enough pages in the world to contain all that, that should be said about Him. So, so it's selective. It's selective in its nature. And that's why 
you're not going to find every event in every gospel. They're they're choosing which ones are important to their to, to the theme that they are that they are um, working towards. And then history. Okay, this is just one book. It's actually volume two of Luke's gospel. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. It's Luke's history of the early church from the time Christ ascended to heaven through Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. Chapters 1 through 12 focus on Peter and chapters 13 through 28 focus on Paul. And then the epistles, these are letters written to individual believers, uh, to churches, to whole cities. And these letters show deep concern of the apostles for the welfare and education and lifestyles of the early believers. And then the Apocalypse is the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible. And uh, here it tells about how it's broken down. I want you to skip all the way down to the end. It says, the word apocalyptic literally means a sudden and violent end of the world. Okay, so, so what John is recording there is what's going to happen in our world, in, in our future world. Okay, so those are the literary types. Um, any questions on any of that? About how those are broken down? Okay. Because what we need to do now is move to different styles of literature. Some styles are prominent in certain types of literature. For example, history is mostly narrative. Wisdom has a lot of poetry. The epistles are basically prose. But all of the books of the Bible, nearly all of the books of the Bible, contain all the different types of literature. And so, from the first time that we begin reading, we notice that the author is using a certain style of writing. Um, and uh, and although uh, although sometimes it's difficult to understand, okay, do I have to really know whether it's prose or poetry? Is it that really important? Um, what I want to do is try to help you have some basic understanding of these these styles of literature just so that you you understand how to interpret them better, to understand what the meaning is better. Okay, so first is prose. This is ordinary, straightforward explanation uh, in uh, non-fiction literature. It's a logical discourse. This is often how you hear sermons being preached or people when they teach, they're doing in prose. Okay, they're saying, because of this, this needs to happen. Because of this, this is what should happen. Okay, so A, therefore B, therefore C, so on. Um, and I gave you an example uh, there in Romans. Okay, narrative. Narrative's pretty easy to spot. These are stories. They may be bi- biographies, autobiographies, national histories, or other historical events. But unlike prose, they simply uh, present the author's point. Okay, they're not talking, this is how things ought to be. For example... When we look at the sin of David and Bathsheba, certainly the authors are not saying, and God is not saying, that this is how we ought to live. We ought to be people who are uh, pleasure seekers and satisfying all our own desires. That's not how we ought to live. So that's what narratives do. They just say how things were, not necessarily how things ought to be. Okay, So that's the difference there between narrative and prose. And then poetry. Webster's defines poetry as the author expressing experiences, ideas, or emotions in, in a style more concentrated, imaginative, and powerful than ordinary speech. 
There's just there's just some power. There's there there's a way that you can you can um, you, you can understand. You can you can feel what they what the what the author is feeling because they they write in such flowery flowery writing letters or words. For example, twenty uh, Proverbs twenty seven six says, "Faithful are the wounds of a friend." Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, if we looked up wounds we wouldn't find the meaning that the author is trying to convey, but we understand the intensity there, that between a, a faithful friend and another person, there's going, to be, there's going to be some rebuke going on. There's going to be some times where it says, you know, you, not, you ought not to live that way. All right? And then what you need to understand is that there's two uh, commonly used poetic expressions, and these are similes and metaphors. Simile and a metaphor. A simile is pretty easy to recognize. It's a comparison between two things using the words like or as. Okay, so you're comparing two things using the words like or as. For example, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11 say, As, okay, that's our key word, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, so is my word that goes out from my mouth point there is, is there's a comparison. There's a comparison between God's Word that will not return uh, useless and the same thing with rain. It doesn't go down, get to the ground, and then make its way back up in the sense that it never touches the ground. It actually does what it's accomplished, it set out to accomplish. And so we have this word as. You'll see a lot of this um, in the... the the Gospels as well when we get to parables. I'll talk to, that, talk to you about that in a second. Okay, so a simile is a comparison using like or as. A metaphor is a little bit more difficult to recognize. It's a comparison, but the, but the, uh, the similarity is not joined with this word like or as. Okay, so it's the same thing. It's just a comparison, but without like or as. For example, Jesus would say, uh, I am the shepherd of the sheep. Okay, he could have said there, "I am like a shepherd of a sheep." We could say we could look at Jesus and we could look at a shepherd and see some things that are common to both. But he doesn't say like. He says, "I am the shepherd of the sheep," or "I am the gate to the sheep pen." John ten one, or "I am the bread of life." See, he's making a comparison, but not using this comparative connector like or as. All right, so those are similes and metaphors. Uh, next, parables. Parables are extended similes. These are simply longer stories um, that that teach a religious les- lesson. Okay, so a longer story. So, for example, uh, Jesus in Matthew 25 says that the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he talks about ten uh, virgins who are waiting to be married and they have to light their lamps and so on. So he uses the word like, but it's an extended comparison. You see, it's not just a short one. I am the, the shepherd of the sheep. Rather, it is a long story. Okay, so that's what parables are. Um, you'll find this a lot in the New Testament. You'll find this a lot in the... Um, in the Gospels, Jesus often taught in this way. He would use long stories used in like or as. Those are called parables. And then allegories. Um, allegories are extended metaphors. 
Okay, so uh, I don't have time to turn there, but I'll just point you to Proverbs 5, 5 15 to 23. If you have time, you, you could look this one up with relation to allegory. It says there, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. And then three verses later, it talks about uh, enjoying or loving the wife of your youth. And so the point there is that 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 Solomon is using a poem. Uh, he's using a way to extend this metaphor, make this comparison between our love for our spouse and and not drinking from someone else's fountain. Okay, you, I I think you see the point there. That's an allegory. <clears throat> now, now we have to be careful when we talk about allegories. Okay, I'm just gonna throw this out there for now and then we'll come back to this in future weeks but it's not it's not a problem to have allegories in scripture okay but it is a problem to interpret scripture allegorically okay and all that means is we don't take narratives okay something that actually happened in history and try to make them apply to our lives in the sense uh, in the way that that scriptures do the same thing for allegories. Okay, so so let me give you an example. The children of Israel went through 40 years of wandering before they reached the promised land. Okay, here's an allegor allegorical interpretation of that, which would be wrong. Okay, all allegorical interpretations are wrong. It would be. I need to go through some sort of valley in order to get to the higher ground, to the better way of life. Okay? You see, because that's not what the author had intended. He wasn't trying to show you what you need to go through. He's simply telling what happened in the past. There's a huge difference there. Now, there are ways that we can apply what happened there to our lives. We'll talk about that when we go through this process here. But, But I just want to throw that out there that when we come to the Scriptures, we can't we can't interpret them in an allegorical way. Make them mean something that they don't mean. All right, and that's simply what what allegories are doing. Now, if the scriptures have those types of of things in there, then that's a different story, like like in Proverbs. All right, then hyperboles. These are deliberate exaggerations. It's a it's an intentional overstatement made to to make a point. They're, they're used to make a point. For example, in Psalm chapter 6, verse 6, the psalmist wrote, All night long my bed is filled with tears. Now, was he saying literally that he, he cried so much that he made his bed into a water bed or something? Is that what he's saying? No, he's, he's making a point. He's, he's ex- intentionally exaggerating to make a point. And, and uh, in that sense, there's no problem with that. It's called hyperbole. Uh, we'll talk about a, a hyperbolic um, expression that Jesus uses this morning when we when we uh, meet in our worship service in Matthew chapter nine. All right, and then a euphemism. This is the exact opposite of a hyperbole, or it's I guess it would be its counterpart. Instead of a deliberate exaggeration, it's a deliberate under exaggeration. Okay, instead of an over exaggeration, it's an under exaggeration. So. Um, for example, the Old Testament would talk about uh, instead of saying the person had to use the toilet, they would say that they covered their feet. That's just a, a, a way of making an under-exaggeration under of a statement to make it not as explicit. Or in the New Testament, um, 
it often uses the word sleep instead of death. Okay. Now, what I'd like to do is is um, to to give you some examples and see if you can pick out which one of these sevens I'm talking about. These are all from Scripture. Number one, for what what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his and loses or forfeits his own soul? Okay, what what would a person gain if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What which one do you think that is? What was it? Allegory? Nope. Hey, that's uh, if that were set in maybe it's a larger setting, that could be an allegory because that's allegory is an extended metaphor, but but it's actually hyperbole. Okay, can we actually gain the whole world? Can any person actually gain the entire world and let's say own it? No. So it's it's an intentional overstatement to make a point. Even if you did all of that. Even if you had the best of the best, the entire world at your disposal, it would do you no good if you lost your soul. Okay. Next, Gen- uh, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you the reference. Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What would that be? What was it? Narrative. Good. Okay. It's from the the historical books, so likely it is a narrative, and it is just talking about what actually happened. How about this one? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness. What would that be? What was it? Poetry. Okay, There there could be uh, a sense in which yeah, there's some word pictures there that might think make us think that it's an allegory, but it's actually poetry. It's just using flowery words to help us get the picture of of our relationship with Christ. How about this one? The kingdom of God is like a man who casts his seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows and he himself does not know. What would that be? Parable. Okay, the kingdom of God is like. Good. All right, a couple more. Um, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Pros? Yeah, pros. Okay, that's Paul talking in First Timothy chapter one, so that, that is pros. Good. Alright, then I kinda gave a hint on this one, but I'll uh, see if you can get this. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You sh- you will be buried at a good old age. Or I'll give you another example from the New Testament: For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. What would that be? A euphemism. Okay, they're using going to your fathers instead of saying that person just flat out croaked or died or something. Instead of that. You're going to your fathers in peace. See how much nicer that is? That's a euphemism. It's an under-exaggeration in order to make a point. And then the last one, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit. And he goes on for ten verses talking about himself being the vine. What would that be? Allegory. Good. Okay. He doesn't say, I'm like the true vine. He says, I am the true vine. So he's making a comparison of himself to the vine without the words like or as. Alright, this this sort of thing seems academic, but it is foundational 
for you when you're reading through the Scriptures. Find out what section you're in and, and, and interpret it in, that, in, that, in those terms, in that light, so you understand better what, um, what God is saying, what God was saying then and what God is saying to you. Okay? Now, important, next class is very important. Okay? I would encourage all of you to be here for this and make sure that you've had plenty of sleep so you can um, understand what we're talking about. We're going to work through the uh, observation, the first step in order to apply things to our lives. Okay? And that's one of the most important. Any questions or comments? All right, let's, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for Your Word and that it is clear. It's not a... a uh, a decoded message or something that or it's not a message that needs to be decoded it's not something that that we have to have uh 20 years of of schooling to understand it's something that the the average person can understand with some basic tools and so we pray that that you would help us in that way that that we would give ourselves to be to being diligent uh to make sure that we are uh workers who are not ashamed and who are rightly dividing Your Word of truth. pray that You'd help us now to take these principles that we've learned and apply them to our personal reading and Bible study. In Jesus' name, Amen.